Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Rick Joy from Studio Rick Joy. Now, Rick is well awarded for his beautiful work. He stays pretty close to the natural palette of things and has created a great body of work um, around the world as well as in America. He's a well-known name. He runs a masterclass in America for architects. I think you class them as um, midterm architects or something like that. There's a, there's yeah. a term, but I'll ask you about that. Um, Rick, thank you for coming on Talk Design. It's such an honor to have you here. I've had a lot of people ask me, get Rick Joy, get Rick Joy. Um, really? So, yeah, a lot of people mm-hmm. have asked me that. Other architects from around uh, America a lot, they want to hear what you've got to say. So it's cool. So welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, for those who don't know you so well, just a quick overview of, I, I, I know you were born in Maine, but just a quick overview of what sparked the, I'm going to be an architect, because something I find is, is that, you know, obviously highly creative person, um, probably good analytics as well. And you could have chosen a dozen things, but you chose this um, amazing outcome and made and maximized it as well. Well, it's a it's a it's a boring yet interesting in various ways story. I'm in Maine, uh, finishing high school, and uh, the meeting with the guidance counselor, you know, the exit meeting. Yeah. They said, Rick, you have the highest IQ in IQ in uh, the entire high school, yet you have the lowest grades. <laughs> But nonetheless, um, we're supposed to tell you two career paths that uh, fit your profile and uh, education and, and the way your brain works. And it was um, architect or air traffic controller. And so my best friend at the time, he goes, she just couldn't get past the age. But um, anyway, so I, but I was an excellent musician um, and I got full scholarship to go to conservatory and I couple years in Maine and um, then uh, just didn't want to do that anymore. It's pretty hard to pass sight singing when you're a drummer. I was about to say you're a drummer. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And uh, I could play everything in the symphony, the jazz, the rock and roll and funk and blues and Bergman and fire and stuff. And anyway, so I did that for until I was 28, 27. And um, decided to kind of look back at what the guidance numbers said. And all along, I'd had this architecture thing in the back of my head. Um, I was all, as a little kid, I was sketching underground cities on giant paper and building forts and just really loved all that kind of stuff. So I took a course in, uh, while in art school for a couple of years, I took a course in physics and I kind of resonated with it. You know, it's, a, it's an honest, like, realm of the world like it, it's just there and you learn about it it's no uh tricks and so i i liked that and so i sent out four catalogs to all the colleges that i thought would be a good place to live first and one of them was the university of arizona 
And back then you had to call, no internet, no texting, cell phone. In the olden days. Call the university. This was 1984. And um, they would mail you the catalog. And so I'm sitting next to my wood stove in January, putting cherry wood in to try to keep warm and sleeping next to it. It was so <laughs> And one showed up from Arizona and it was a picture of a saguaro and a sunset, orange cover with cactus and everything. And I looked up to school and read about it. The Dean, um, Ron Gorley was a elegant guy, it was a, a Gorley Sir Jackson was the firm and uh, that he was part of. And he was one of his best friends and, and moved to Arizona for the weather for his um, health. Elegant guy, beetle suit, brilliant teacher, and my desk for three years just happened to be right outside. Wow. I just, uh, it clicked for me right from the day. And I taught uh, design lettering and all that stuff at Curry Lockhart, which you probably don't was a, was a big deal in the last. Um, and uh, just um, Wilbur School to work on the Phoenix Central Library. Yeah. And then um, the um, uh, rest, you know, finished that after three years of internship and started home practice. Wow, that's so cool. It, it's um, interesting, like I said, creative guy. So then, but music was your other kind of angle on that of being the, the creative thing. So, as a drummer, do you still drum? You still drum. <laughs> Is that just a single snare set up there? Yeah, it's. Um, I'm practicing right now because um, I'm joining a, a group of guys that's, uh, that do a country thing like Billy Nelson. Oh, really? I just have a snare drum and hi hat, and we just uh, they play currently just on people's porches in the neighbor's comedy. Yeah, they're all the guys from Giant Sand. Wow, I love that. Uh, yeah. And, um, uh, no. I was going to say, are you going to gonna bang it for us? No, I just got that. From my, are you just The Ted's real loose and stuff. I, um, I was talking to uh, a couple of different guys. One, Jeffrey Dungan. I don't know whether you've ever come across Jeffrey. He's from Alabama. Near the guitar in the corner, and um, he, uh, I said to him, "Do you play that?" And he's like, "Yeah." And so he got it and played it. And then uh, another guy called Peter Tui, he's up from around Connecticut, and uh, he played a whole like it was actually just when Eddie Van Halen died. He played a whole big Eddie Van Halen piece, um, just yeah, just like you know, just that kind of thing. It's um, there's such a. I did a podcast with Peter on the rhythm of music and architecture and how they're intrinsically linked, if you want to see them that way, which I think there is, there's a lot of, um, you know, rhythm and beat and um, it's the same music reveals itself. It's uh, like architecture can reveal itself. And that's kind of the game of, or part of the fun yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, for me, it's been, you know, as, as the drummer. Yeah. It's not the same when you're in the symphony, of course, you're not like setting the tone and atmospheric, the violins, but um, the, um, the groove tone of the, of the thing creates that, uh, of the beat creates that. And that's what, how, what started me thinking more about atmosphere and songwriting and um, 
you can look in the uh, front flap of Desert Works and you see kind of some lyrical about the ground crunching under your feet and the gaping and the water dripping and all that kind of stuff is how I think when I'm designing, I want to hear and see all that stuff, smell stuff. That, that's a really lovely segue because one of the things from looking at your work and also I've watched a heap of pieces, you know, on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how so much of it comes from, obviously the environment, but so much of it comes from that small observation of the land that, you know, that the micro observation of what's happening around you um, and being able to weave that into the experience of the building and then the people who, who get to enjoy that building um, from there on in. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? About your well, process? I mean, most often I'm building for somebody who hadn't um, lived in the, in the place at all before. And I had this um, natural um, tendency to be, um, um, you know, uh, comprehensively observant at all times. Like I'm always looking at the ground or the crack with little flowers in it or some things that a municipal worker did on a sidewalk. Yeah. Um, there's one picture, I think, in one of the books that, of that. And um, those little things and then all the, the micro elements of a site you know, the flora, the fauna, the way the wind blows, all that stuff just comes naturally. And the smell of it, the, yeah. the scent. And the tactile qualities, the smells and, and, and the colors and all of that. And I used to be a um, pretty, uh, I was um, focused heavily on uh, uh, canyoneering, um, hiking down into the deep canyons in Arizona uh -huh. and camping for a few days. And um, again, the tactical is just smell, but everything's just for real down there. And then when you come back up and you have to design a, a fountain for the beginning of your office experience, Convent Studios, it was yeah. exactly like the canyon experience. Or like the, uh, the, um, the big uh, terraces, patios on the two back house where there's little pools and big pools and all. I mean, I had just been to Hell's Gate backpacking for a week and then that's it you put those two pictures together uh in fact there's in desert works there's a photo in the back of a canyon right in the back yeah one of the back pictures and look for the view of the in that same book of the two back house of the courtyard where you see a pool with uh steel boxes uh, risen from the ground and waters and flowing over and and you see other four, put those next to each other and you'll see what I mean. I'll have to do that. That, yeah. So that's Canyons a, are a big deal for me. Well, I and mean, is that where part of the um, absolute love of rammed earth came from? Is that part of that? Uh, kind of. I mean, a little. I mean, I uh, the first project was I made canyons. Yeah. But um, uh, the rammed earth is the actual material itself. And the history, I mean, it's thousands of years old. Yeah. And um, we do it with the more modern techniques with pneumatic tampers. And, sure. Yeah. And all little cement and color. Um, 
but you can look at the image of the outdoor courtyard at my office, mm -hmm. Canyon. The, mm -hmm. uh, the, the way to the master bedroom in the Catalina house, Canyon's Canyon. And I just, I, um, I find that, and, and even on Amangiri, the, a lot of the passageways are canyons, but on four of the rooms, there are, well, you know, six. Um, you can sleep up on a roof in a little canyon and from your bed, you can only see the Milky Way, which is yeah. what you get in a canyon. That, exactly, everything. Get this beautiful black side. Yeah, yeah. Milky Way. It, it, it takes all the other out. And if you're lucky, you might get a couple of trees that just sort of filter into the side of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something very, um, I suppose, safe and intimate feeling like when you're in that kind of space. I, I know my favorite um, of, well, I've got a few favorites, but my favorite of America's national parks is Zion. And yeah, it's just, again, because you're in that valley floor, and when you're in that valley floor, I mean, some of that's huge, obviously, not up in the narrows, but it is just, um, there's something so solid about it. I've always said to, you know, I, I think that I'm just such a, flighty kind of like high energy person that I need that kind of weight around me. And when I got to Zion, I was just like, whoa, I'm, I'm, yeah, this is me. This is me. It's just, um, yeah. And, and more so the, than even Yosemite. And I, I really like Yosemite. Um, and then I've been up around you know, Bryce Canyon and all those kind of places as well. But there's something about, yeah, that sort of the weight of it that um, just settles me right down. Yeah. Does, um, yeah, it's um, it's a life force for sure. Yeah, and right. I, you know, I tend to go to places where they're really, it's so difficult to get there that, um, I mean, Peter Stuthbury would have to crawl. Um, <laughs> I'm only saying it because he's in that, he's on the thing, you know. <laughs> I saw him come in. <laughs> I said, to, I said, he would have to crawl. <laughs> I think you're right. He'd have to get down really low to get through there. <laughs> Morning, oh, Peter. The ones that we... He's having. He's struggling to connect to his audio, but we can keep talking. What I would do would be would involve um, climbing down a thousand feet, which, which which on a normal hike is nothing, but it would take all day, and then swim through three box canyons with your backpack, and then pitch a tent on a little sandbar. And the last time I went, I thought we would be alone, but there was a giant bear turd on the sandbar. <laughs> Took us an hour to scoop it off into the river. And, uh, and I knew it was gonna come back, so we weren't alone, but we just made a lot of Christmas stuff. So you stayed all the same? You, you yeah. camped all the same, even though there was a giant bear turd and you had toothpaste and you know stuff like that in your pack? No, we didn't bring any of that stuff. In fact, we, we went left with more stuff than we brought because we were always picking up any signs of human, anything, a little twist tie or yeah, right. bottle cap or anything. Take it out. Now, the reason so, I, I, I did learn a lot from those experiences and that it comes out more. I was about to say, you can see it in your work. Now, the reason I um, that Peter's here is the other day, I said, let's surprise Rick because uh, your name came up in masterclass and um, said to Peter, can you get Why up that early? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this, Welcome, this, I'm, this is late for me. I've just had morning tea, mate. Yeah, right. <laughs> just come in from the office. 
That's true. Who's that? Who's, who are you talking to? Um, I'm not sure who this bloke is. Have you met him before? He's very unfamiliar. Um, I know a lot of really good architects. I know a lot of really good architects in America, but I don't know that fella. Well, you're about to. <laughs> you're going to learn something from him, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> um, Let's well, see. You, you both love Ram Dirth, for starters. So um, I've just worked out um, – well, I haven't worked it out. Um, Rick's just told me about Ram Dirth. So, Peter, what's your deal with Ram Dirth? Uh, you dropped out there, Adrian. Sorry, I said. Um, I said. Uh, Rick's just told me about rammed earth and um, and the canyons and how it, not just rammed earth, but how it's all part of that fabric and such an old old material. And I was saying, what's your deal with rammed earth? Because in Australia, I don't even know the history, and you might be able to tell me the history of rammed earth um, and and how it was it was it ever used a lot here. And, you know, we're such an old culture here. Uh, it wasn't used in uh, Indigenous culture at all, um, unlike, unlike Africa. I, I learned everything about Rambirth from Rick. You know? He taught me everything about Rambirth, and so that's why I've inherited it over here. And not yeah, that was it. easy because there's only like four things to know. I also think I also think Rick was using it because the buildings were so cheap. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no, no. They, I first tried Legos, but that was way more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Kept stepping on the blocks and hurting your feet. Yeah. No, the ram, the rammed earth was. Um, I mean, it seems like a. A natural progression, really, you know, like where we've got serious climate concerns and we've got to start thinking about our materials a little bit deeper. Mm. So, you know, rammed earth is pretty low energy material, high labour though, but low energy and um, low carbon footprint. So I think I think that alongside um, the need for more organic aesthetic in some of the work is... is um, tempting around earth more and more mm. yeah it's, it's it's fading in my country um and i think i i started my practice at kind of the the tail end last 10 years of people moving west um encouraged to build something with a pioneer spirit and try something new and uh, the the world of architecture in the u.s now is all about commodity and resale and and uh and uh, wealth appearance and all that stuff. So you build a random house for someone and it has, gets a little crack, which they all do. Of course. They just get really upset. And uh, it never happened before, uh, 15 years ago. Do you think and that... So one in 15 years. Wow. That's a shame. Do you think and that... my office would, it would be... 15 times the cost today uh, as it was in 1995. Because of labor costs. Labor costs. And it's a, we're a litigious society in the um, United States now. You know. People yeah. sue each other for nothing. Yeah. We're, we're, we're close here. We're, I think we're the number two in the world for that. 
and people people trying to understand that it's an it's so natural that um yeah it will wear and it will as you say get little cracks and stuff like that i mean the same with a you know a concrete floor you know like it's but it's got a crack in it yeah they all do that's that's just what happens to concrete it's got to settle it's got to do what it does um and so yeah being able and, to you know, and in the old days i used to have fun with it I, um, there was one client um uh, it was actually will bruder's client i was just helping him with building it and there was a, a pretty bad crack in the concrete and i encouraged him to get some bright fluorescent pink grout and the guy had a really great sense of humor and it was mostly about sex and stuff. <laughs> but um he did it and for years when he lived in that house he would say hey you want to come in the other room and see my pink crack <laughs> Every time I was there, somebody'd come over and he would he would do that. I don't know if you can say that kind of thing in the podcast. Take it out. <laughs> we can. But, uh, Trust me, we can. A, you can you can turn that stuff into a sense of humor and a fun moment. You know, it doesn't have to be, oh my god, it cracked. It, it at least it didn't end up being your signature and everybody saw that and not the rammed earth. <laughs> <laughs> no, that one was a Will Bruder. That was a block, concrete block and stuff. I think that's a great idea of, um, you know, adding personality and humor and, um, and you know, that, that take making the most of whatever's there that comes from the process. I reckon that's a br brilliant idea. Peter, have you got a story like that with a pink crack? Uh, no, I keep those stories <laughs> pretty quiet. You know, our lit litigious system over here is far more uh, aggressive, I think. I didn't name any names. <laughs> it's um but taking advantage of um of the material's natural characteristics i think is ra rather than everything just trying to be polished to the nth degree or everything being so perfect that it loses its you know it loses that texture or that um what it returns to you from its imperfections you know like the, the landscape is never just, it, it is perfect because it's imperfect. And in it, there's a journey and, you know, like every tree isn't the same on, you know, all sides. It's different pretend, depending on whether it's north, south, east, west face or how the bark grows on one side or what's prepared to live on the bark on one side. Um, everything gets its texture of, of life from it. Uh, yet we do seem to be in a, society i think it's driven by computers an awful lot where everything has to be just to this and just to this and if there's anything that's slightly out of place um and all that textures get gets lost and yet people will still leave their clothes lying around and food on the bench but what they expect from the other side of it is is this you know, like not just perfection but a lack of texture i think is um yeah well that's why i put that photo on the front of desert works I mean, right. I could have been, I could have done Lucan to the end on that thing, but I just let it be cowboy. There's places where, you know, joints of the render form more don't line up with the penetrations and stuff. And I, I just wanted that. And there was a time, um, I don't know when, years ago, uh, no, um, that I was in Mumbai, a big conference called 361. And, um, I went and stayed with uh, B. Joy Jane for a few days. 
Friday night. And it was, it was pretty beautiful. And then um, that finished and it was still the conference had started. So we went into town because he had to teach a class. And I, he says, you want to come? And I went and um, we improv an entire half an hour of part of a class with the title that we later titled it, Planned Imperfection. Mm-hmm. I like because it. when you walk to the school in the middle of Mumbai, um, you're, we all do it. We walk on those sidewalks and they're, you know, a hodgepodge and, <laughs> and the lines are going in all directions. But that we all say it's beautiful, right? Yeah, we all enjoy the experience of it. That's the crazy thing. Yet um, on, the, on the one side, you'd hate to be in a wheelchair or on crutches on those things. On the other right. side of it, we get the experience of it. And I, I, I kind of get the both, but we miss so much of the experience of things if, um, if we just homogenize everything to nothing. Even like national park trails and stuff can end up like that. Yeah. You know, I, I see that happen. Hey, with, with the differences between, say, Australia and the US, in, in sort of like, broad key kind of things what would give both of you peter you know i mean you're world renowned for what you do rick you are what what sort of the differences between if you were designing in one place or the other and if you took a similar climate zone so um somewhere that's uh that i'm just trying to think of well what's tucson got and where would that be the equivalent be peter in australia of tucson for a climate would it be out towards uh, the rock? It would be sort of inland New South Wales, probably. Yeah, right. So, so what, would be the, what would be the sort of nuances if you're designing that you would look at differently depending on where you were um, from a land perspective and from a form perspective? Um, or would you just pick up one house and put it in the other place with obviously no, no, a little no. bit of work? No, but I think um, before talking about form and landscape and all of that, I think what we've lost in, in the United States and what I alluded to before um, was that, um, I, you know, I came on the scene in architecture as a young, not so young, actually, I don't believe it, but, um, and um, the people were moving to the American West with this really great pioneer spirit. And I'd show them some random earth and they're like, yeah, I want that, uh, rusty steel. Um, and uh, I never really, uh, the people that were um, really seeking out an alternative lifestyle and all that stuff really felt that they could just design and build it themselves. And there's a lot of that around Tucson in Arizona. And I envy these you, you guys in Australia, Peter and Rick especially, that uh, still doing these kind of like, not to the extreme of Rick, the way he lives and, and your, your old house, Peter, but the, um, the, the clients and the way you can build like that one in the Blue Mountains, the police, it's just like just magic to an architect's uh, psyche. Mm. And uh, now people are just treating me like a commodity. I also think as, as popularity changes, you know, um, as one becomes more popular, the client base changes as well. You know, when we were younger, we were building houses for mates and designing for locals and, you know, doing it on the cheap. And and that sort of um, 
not cavalier, but that sort of um, uh, tough, you know, come, come lucky attitude um, was reflected in the building types. Uh, it wasn't that they were unresolved. It was just that they had a, a, um, a boldness, I think, about them. You know, and as you get, as Rick said earlier on, you know, the litigious system, it's, as you get more responsible, well, not more responsible, but as the jobs become, <laughs> become bigger or more responsible, you know, you, you, there tends to be a, a slight shift. I mean, you're talking about materials and, and that. We've, we've just recently um, headed back in that direction uh, with a sort of rawness to the work that I... I more looking for architecture and less looking for finishes. And I think that's something that we all need to think about in terms of educating clients too. I mean, Rick's early work was amazing like that. He, you know, I remember visiting uh, in Tucson and going to some of the early buildings and feeling overwhelmed with its originality, but also its connectedness with, with the ancients, which... I think is a really important part of architecture. I agree totally. And I, I wonder if COVID, um, one of the benefits of COVID might be other than this, you know, crazy building boom around the world, um, might be that people are looking to be more connected to the earth as such and to their environment. Certainly something that I hear people say, it hasn't, I don't know where I'm seeing it happening so much, but maybe that's just a bit of time, you know, like a lot of stuff that's been designed will start to roll out into the future. But people certainly seem to have had a bit of a back to nature shift and a bit of a consciousness around their their own self and their position within nature. I think because, you know, this invisible thing kind of stalled their lives or not stalled it, just redirected it. Um, and I think there's, I sort of study a lot of trend stuff and I'm seeing that kind of coming as long, along with this feminine energy kind of thing that's sort of there and um, just a shift in, in general feeling of things. And I don't know whether that's happening as much in the States because I haven't been there for a year, but um I don't know, Rick, what do you think on that? Do you think that that's shifting psyche, the fact that we've had this, um, well, we're still in it, we're not over it, but in this COVID world? Or has it just gone straight back to commerce in America? And uh, Well, that's always going to be the case in the US. I mean, um, they've built seven new 10-story apartment buildings in downtown Tucson. It's in the last five years, and they not one of them called me. And so it's all commerce, it's all commodity, and the floor plan plans are terrible, and they're getting eighteen hundred bucks a night for one with no balcony. And um, it's just just squeezing money out of the market. And uh, but the one interesting and good thing that's happened during this COVID um, uh, time is that. I am more and more getting calls for people who really want to move to a more rural area. Yeah. So people are calling me from Sun Valley, from a small town in New Hampshire, 
uh, way out in the boonies in the woods in Minnesota. Um, and, and more people coming to Tucson and, and, and Phoenix. Mm. So um, I've just picked up uh, four projects that I can drive to when I just spent the last 15 years with projects that I can only fly to. Yeah, wow. Peter, are you seeing the same? Yeah, there's a definite trend, oh, obvious trend in Australia of people moving into the country. And um, what that's doing, though, is it's putting pressure on our farmland. Um, it's being subdivided into hobby farms, no production. So it, on one hand, it's, it's wonderful there is a an attitude to um, sustains oneself, uh, both spiritually and emotionally, but but there's also a downside to that, which is the decline of agricultural land. And I see that um, through my family's farming sort of industry. And I think so. I think there needs to, you know, the, the counterbalance will come, and I'm not sure what that's going to be, but there will be a counterbalance. I think we're going to be decentralized definitely and i wonder if you know this is going to be more than norm the zoom connection yeah well that's that's a sad thing if it is because you know that same thing is like rick and i were talking earlier and i know during last week peter you and i talking when you're walking across the land and just um capturing the micro kind of things that are happening in it and you know, spotting or hearing the wind or spotting something or um, feeling the, the dampness under your feet or whatever it is or the dryness, you know, and knowing um, the smells and stuff. This, we never, we never get that on Zoom. We get that when we're face-to-face. -face. So even if it does happen like this, we will end up sit, trying to seek out this human-human connection like face-to-face, -face, I imagine. But as you say, this may becomes the norm. Yeah, I mean, the reality is you, your memory doesn't stay with you over Zoom, whereas if you meet someone face-to-face, -face, you know, the incidents and the tactility of it stays with you. Mm. But, you know, on the other hand, the carbon footprint's reduced enormously because we're not travelling in the air all the time. Yeah. And so there's, there is a real positive climatically to... Yeah, I mean, we have the wild animals walking around in Tucson. And I, I, I don't know when, maybe last fall, I saw a, a, a clip of kangaroos jumping around in, in Sydney, downtown. You know, hey, it's yeah, that, great. There's no cars. You know Those were Peter's pets. He dropped them in there for um, taking to the vet. <laughs> Sounds like that. That's right. Well, we, we were in Tucson together and we saw that coyote on the road. Yeah. No, we yeah. just saw last week a whole, a whole um, band of... Um, um, uh, peccaries, um, they're like wild pigs walking yeah. just down the street, wow. right in front of our office. Yeah. Wow, didn't, didn't bother anything, anybody. And do you think and that's been so dry? We had lots of hawks now that are coming in to eat people's small dogs and cats. <laughs> <laughs> really, they just come in to yeah. attack them because uh, because it's no, so dry for, for food, there's nothing out in the desert. It's, so, so this is another question that comes off that then is global warming's real i'm, I'm going to make that as a statement global warming's real 
And what are you seeing, like you're just saying like that with, you know, it's so dry. And I looked at some maps the other day of the, the temperatures across the US. And, um, you know, in the last 30 years or even less, it's just become a red dot um, because of the dryness and because of the heat. And Australia is following close behind that. But we always had a big red dot, mainly because of the outback um, and just overall heat. But what do you both think on the global warming thing? And I know, Peter, you were, you were talking last week about the fact that you've got just no idea how scarce water is about to be. And I was saying to the New Zealand crew that were there, I said, oh, you know, surely us Kiwis are all fine in New Zealand. And they said, you know, we're in drought and um, waters, we're on water restrictions and stuff like this in New Zealand as well. So that's pretty shocking when I moved there to, moved here to get away from the rain that was there. So um, tell me your thoughts on that, both of you. I'd be really keen to, and, and, and what we do and what we do with it. I'm sticking with the term um, climate change because um, here in Tucson, which is a pretty severe climate place, <laughs> Um, two winters ago, we had more rain and the coolest weather you could ever imagine. And it was in, uh, I don't know Celsius very well, um, but in, in Fahrenheit, like um, in the 60s through May. Right, which is, which low, is yeah. unheard of. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it was marvelous for us. I mean, it was <laughs> and the wildflowers that season were incredible. And we were like, I like this global you know climate change stuff going on right right this year yeah 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 then we've had uh uh, last summer we had no monsoon so we had no rain like we typically do big flash floods and rains from the mountains and um i still don't see any of the clouds on the mountains that start the rainstorms from uh during the monsoon yet and it's already the end of july almost and so that puts you that puts you into um into drought does it yeah, that, well, interestingly, um, Tucson has a gigantic aquifer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only lawns are at the university and on golf courses. That's it. Yeah, uh, right. Unlike when you go to Phoenix, they build housing complexes and they make a lake and they you can get go kayaking in a fake lake and, from your house. And uh, they irrigate everything. There's probably... 40 times more as more golf courses than Tucson. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to Phoenix as well. Yeah. Um, Peter, what do you think from an Australian perspective? Because you were saying just before, you know, we'll become decentralized and people are moving to the country, but they still would seem to be staying on those sort of outer edges of the country. Not there isn't people sort of moving to the, to the desert. Well, I might be wrong there, but I, um, I was out there last year out, you know, Ayers Rock and or Uluru and um, around there. And I didn't know that there was migration going that way. Um, but maybe there is. I'm not sure. No, it's more more the sort of um, the, the, the coastal strip. towns, more the coastal towns. And I, was, I don't think anyone naturally is going to move to the desert unless work takes them there. But I, I think, you know, I agree with Rick, it's, it's um it's not just climate change though it's change in general I mean and, and human uh, caused change like uh, our kelp beds are down eighty five percent you know our mm. fish stocks have changed the things that we don't see 
you know, the temperature of the water has definitely changed because I swim in it every day. You know, the, the, um, the, we're getting, as Rick said, we're getting um, more water out west, but we're getting it in different bursts. And, you know, we're, we're using all the water from our Artesian Basin, so the ground is drying up. And, you know, we had 2 million fish die last year because the cotton farms i mean there's there's one only has to look for 20 minutes to see the dramatic change caused by humans and and so i, I wouldn't call it climate change as much as human change and and i it's radical and we've got to start addressing it like immediately um or or suffer the consequences. And a friend of mine who's been staying the last couple of days, who's very um, educated on all this, said, you know, like, COVID is nothing. You know, we've got 3.8 million people who've unfortunately passed with COVID. He said, but if climate change keeps going the way it is, we're going to be talking about billions, you know. Yeah, wow. Mm. That's, that's, well, and, you know, that's we, we had a pretty miserable president for four years yeah. that uh, promoted all the things that are the worst thing you can do for the environment in our country, which is, uh, for example, fracking. Yeah. It's the dirtiest um, uh, system for getting anything out of the land. And it's uh, just dumping stuff in the rivers and fish are dying when we feed it with sand. It's, it's like uh, the Biden just shut it down. Yeah, well, thank God. It. Thank the God that, that, that he didn't you know, that there wasn't enough that he could engineer another term because, you know, eight years of it might have actually, I mean, might have been so much, yeah, so much more destructive um, destruction that would have happened. It, uh, but all they talk about are the people that lost jobs. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, what about all the wildlife that lost their lives? Yeah. will continue to do do I remember back when um, computers kind of became mainstream and there was nobody who worked in IT? You know, IT didn't exist and um, because there was no, you know, there probably was with some companies, but IT wasn't a thing. And you think of how our whole world in the last, say, 30 years um, around, you know, the computers, the internet, um, all these things. I mean, the internet, I don't even know that it's 30 years old yet, is it? Maybe just. Um, you, you look at that and you go, it's changed our whole paradigm. We couldn't be doing this. We couldn't have even done this on a phone and had a three-way conversation. Um, so it's changed Without our whole... Andy Annan's listening on the party line. Yeah, exactly. You know, having a ring number, ring, 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 and it's, oh, well, that's Peter's one. Oh, yeah, ring, ring, that's Rick's one. You know, that that thing where it was three rings and two longs and one short or whatever it was. But, yeah, the, the, that side of it's moved so much um, that maybe, yeah, maybe this um, next stage of it will be where we shift and it just does a, a shift across right across the world um, based on, this um, humankind like looking after themselves somewhat. It's certainly more of a conversation and wellness is more of a conversation. And I see that cropping up a lot in um, architecture, you know, architecture for wellness. Like, so it's actually about, and I think, I mean, I'd say with you guys, um, it's probably been a, a, something that you've been very aware of for a long time. And it's just sort of part of the DNA of what, how you're thinking. But 
when that can get down to sort of the more masses, then I suppose it becomes really valuable so that everybody gets a better life from it um, or, or the, at least the opportunity. It, uh, and, and less disposable as well is the other thing, you know, like um, visiting, you know, some of the homes that we visited this time and I've done lots in the States, homes that are built for hundreds of years of your, your studio, Rick, would be an example of that. It's, it's, it's built for timelessness. It, you know, I haven't been there, but I've certainly seen it in video and stuff. And it's built to be something that, um, yeah, in 100, 200 years, it would still be sitting there. And it's on a... I hope you know, so. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Ranbirth tends to melt. Eventually. It's just dirt and water. And it's, it's doing okay. 20 years old. Yeah. Well, at least when it melts, it just falls back into the ground. Yeah. And it doesn't, and it doesn't, you know, leave anything extra. It doesn't. It is what it is, you know, it doesn't take anything much from it and it doesn't put anything much back, back into it when it falls apart. It's got to be a beautiful People drive thing. by and steal the steel and the condo and stuff and it'll be clean. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, I've got a question for you guys. If you were forced to do a project together, which I can imagine, um, who would take the lead? No, that isn't it. Um, that wasn't my question. What would be... What would be the, the project, the one project that you'd want to do together if it was the only project you could ever do together? What would you choose and who would it benefit um, and where would it be? Who wants to talk first? Uh, I, I think we should do Rick's house again. <laughs> <laughs> the current one or the anyway, <laughs> family anyway, one? Oh, yeah. any of them. Yeah. With a pink crack in it? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to do a project with Rick in terms of who takes the lead. Rick always takes the lead. You can't deny that. You know? No, not necessarily. But the, no. um, <laughs> I did think about it once um, when I was in um, when I was in Australia. We were, I think it was right after that Blue Mountain Masterclass. Yep. And I got a call from some Buddhists. Um, leaders um they were from uh springs no alice springs and um they're phds and stuff and they they said they wanted to meet me because they wanted me to take a look at working on their buddhist temple <coughs> and i immediately go okay well geez there's a lot of architects in australia why spend ten thousand dollars for every flight to me <coughs> you can and, go uh, economy and then uh, yeah <laughs> No, um, he can't. <laughs> excuse me. But I thought in the moment that, that uh, you know, um, it wouldn't be necessary, but we could make it fun. Peter and I could work together. And he would take the lead because he's going to want to be in Australia with the license and all that. And, so, and I just, you know, do all the design because he needs so much help. <laughs> uh, no, but, you know what was funny about that I, I stayed in contact with them for quite a while uh, based on some humor um, the guy that I met in a bar a Buddhist monk um, a PhD that was sticking with the monk thing and um, we met in a bar I had a nice tea to be respectful and everything and um, and he texted me after, and I texted him, and he texted me again. And so when I 
to meet and all that. And I said, I sent a text that said, it would be a great pleasure to be a part of the design of your new Buddhist temple. But I didn't notice my spell checker on my phone <laughs> changed it to nudist temple. <laughs> and they went ahead? <laughs> no, that, 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 that prolonged our texting for a long time, for months. <laughs> It was just, I think he was just hoping that my spell checker would get me again. Uh, but it was uh, hilarious. I still have it on my phone someplace. Oh, that's perfect. Be my... <laughs> I, spelled, I spelled Buddhist wrong with an H in the wrong place somewhere. <laughs> and it uh, came out as nudist. Nudist. <laughs> so the nudist temple. Do you know what? There's probably, um, there's probably been plenty of people who would line up for you guys to do a nudist temple for them. Oh, that's classic. I don't know. I'm getting older. <laughs> and? Uh, it's, um, it, would be, uh, it would be a fun collaboration, I'm sure. It would be, uh, be fun to see how it came out. It would, I, I think that the fact is, is that it would be so carefully considered. That would be the most amazing thing. Um, and also to do something like a... A temple like that um a lot of people when i say if they only had one project left they they pick um doing either a religious thing or a school or um yeah it's, it's interesting like generally it's something where people have the ability to have significant moments um which i think is a really amazing thing yeah i mean i i, I know some other architects that have done just uh, all pro bono uh, school and like Burkina Faso. Yeah. Um, you know, Francis Correa does them, but they need more than he can handle. And uh, to just jump in all pro bono, make a nice school, um, let some of our sons work on it, learn other languages and stuff, and, and, um, and do something like that could be really meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, I've got one last question, which um, you can both choose to, uh, to answer. Um, the next five years, what's it going to, what do you see is going to happen? Is there going to be any shift or is it going to be business as usual? And we've talked a bit about this, but just what do you see as being the most significant things that are likely to happen with architecture in the next five years? Um, and five years isn't a long time in architecture. It's a, it's a pretty close sort of game. Um, and with our globalization and the way our globalization is now currently split, you know, where our globalization is still there because we can do this kind of thing and we still send products around the world, but we're no longer like being able to be in each other's spaces as much. I mean, Australia's borders are still closed. I mean, America's aren't. But um, Australia certainly are, and probably maybe even for another six or eight months, we might be closed. So is there anything that you see that's likely to be significant in that with architecture? You know, uh, the, 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 the humanizing virtues that make great architecture really haven't changed the whole course of time. You know, we all slouch in the chair the same way. Peter slouches a little more. But, uh, he, he's got older. Um, yeah. 
No, but I think um, this topic came up when there was that moment when people were making cyber cafes and how is it going to be different and everything. Well, you still need a good place to put your coffee and you need a really comfortable chair and you need nice light from outside. And um, no, it, just because you're looking at a screen rather than a book, nothing's going to change. Um, and I, I, I think, um, you know, we touched on moving to the country and all that kind of stuff. I think we'll, I mean, I'm designing two houses right now where uh, one was really a lot of fun because they had little kids uh, where we're designing a space for Zoom caller. Oh. And so I've talked them into letting the kids every Sunday redesign that space. Like do whatever because their father's going to be on it all, all week doing his work on Zoom call. So if their the daughter will put fuzzy stuff, and, you know, girly stuff all over the place. And he's got it. He's, he said he would stick with it. He would do a Zoom call from this. And, How much? Um, I think we we all kind of have to do that. And I think I think reviews are going to stay with Zoom, you know, in the architecture schools. Um, I think uh, it's much better than real life because you can see everyone's face at the same time. You can see the people, you know, like the MPs showing up at uh, reviews. Yeah. They're not just looking at the back of our heads. In the front row, they they're looking at our face, and we're talking, and they're talking, and inclusive of everybody. I don't think teaching can happen on Zoom. It's got to be face to face and how close the person is. And um, uh, and so, um, you know, I've done more lectures in the last year and a half than I did before. Uh, because like of Zoom and, and uh, Helsinki and places and i don't even have to charge for it to walk in the other room and stand in front of the computer and, um you know and give a zoom call lecture i've got like five and you pick one and just go for it that's pretty cool isn't it as a as a shift um to think that the knowledge that you have can be shared so much more easily um you know those lectures and stuff um that's a that's a great you know from from Tucson it's pretty grueling to fly to Mumbai. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's just rugged. Uh, Sydney's Sydney's not that bad because I know Pete's on the other end. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick and, and uh, yeah. By the way, Peter uh, Claudia melted. She talked about it for two days that phone call you gave us last Friday. Oh, oh Friday. yeah. She was beaming. Nice. Um, and so, um, you know, I just, uh, you know, the stuff I'm designing now is just like I've been designing all along. Nice. Pay attention to humanizing virtue and, and, um, and, and have a lot of care and, and, um, and tenderness with the, the way of um, helping them live on the landscape. Yeah, that's beautiful. And 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 actually, kind of, I, I wouldn't have expected you to say, oh, I'm going to change all my design aesthetic to something else, because it's so true to who you are as well, like, just looking through. Well, all I think we're always and, going to need nature yeah. in our lives. And obviously, Peter does that in every project. Mm. And I'm, I'm really, um, I don't like the word proud, but I'm pretty, pretty impressed about my team and how we managed to make that uh, Tennessee 205 project in Polanco, Mexico City. Mm -hmm. Every there's three light wells with plants mm -hmm. hanging across the sides and everything. 
and every room in the in a five-story building except for the closets gets and has nature. Yeah. All year round in the most polluted city in the world. And yeah. um, and it, it was one of those things where I said, let's just try this. Hope we can do it. And then it happened. And uh, you have nature in the bathroom on the first floor. Beautiful green plants. Yeah, it, 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 it's in, it's in um, for anybody who's listening to this, it's uh, Studio Joy Works. Um, Rick's book and uh, it is it's a stunning project and also as you say one that's surrounded by three other five story buildings yeah so we yeah. only had one facade and the rest of the site was dark and we brought those plants in uh, yeah I love that um, little fire pit piece on the top and just so many things those the bits of water and stuff it's it's beautiful and it's um it, it's all concrete yeah yeah and um, it's an interesting process in Mexico. They um, remember the cop shows from like the 70s and 80s where there would be like this pep talk at the beginning before everyone goes out on, on patrol. Yep. Right? Yep. And they're like, I want you guys to do this. I want you guys to do that. Well, that's how they work as contractors. First thing in the morning, they all show up, sit on those chairs, like the school chairs with a little, little writing tablet thing on the side. And the contractor tells them all what they're going to do. And they all split and go to the site. No drawings on the site. Oh, really? So they just take it in their memory. Yeah. yeah that's, and that's, the building's perfect. Gotta love but, that. But you know, five times I went down there and I said, "Well, I," you know, they'd say, well, "What about this detail here? What are we supposed to do here?" And I'm like, we, "We drew that. It's in the drawings. Just bring the drawings over." And they they all looked at each other like, oh. "Who's got the drawings?" <laughs> and all all five times I saw the same little kid run downstairs, jump in a red little tiny pickup truck and drive 40 minutes to the office and pick them up and drive 40 minutes back. <laughs> Finally, we'd get them and I could I just open it and point to the detail. And the guy would, oh yeah, yeah, I should have known that. There's some drawings on the site. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it was miraculous at that time. That's incredible. And, and beautifully finished as well. Beautifully finished. So, Peter, what do well, you? If you think? want to see our most current project, um, yeah. it's finished. Take a look at online. Um, one and only through resort Turgeon. I think there's one in Australia. Um, one, and um, only. one and only Mandarina. Mandarina. It's got a Enrique Oliveira restaurant. It's a kids clubs and polo fields and polo clubs. And it's 178 standalone buildings, and we wow. get those all the roads and uh, all the interiors and lighting all made in Mexico original. And you, you did that. You made the lighting as well. Sweat just explaining. You know, my wife's a great. Yeah. 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 That's about how we connected. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay. I'm going to go and look that up online. Um, one and only Mandarina. Yep. Cool. It's finished and they've been open since November and, We'll put a link. I believe we finished. We'll put a link in the bio as well for that on the show notes, um, so that people can go and find it. Yeah, and um, you know that website. Half of the images are rent, still renderings, and yep. there's photographers on their side now. And then in three weeks, we have ours. We have a, a drone guy and a, a, a Japanese photographer who's lived in Mexico for the last nine years, going in for um, two weeks. And they gave our team. Uh, three rooms 
and they're 1800 bucks a night before you gave them to us. Wow. And, and two buggies. Wow. That's um, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So you'll get it's all that. Lot, it's a blur. It's yeah. It's a big blur and it happened. How many people did you manage to fit into those three rooms? <laughs> Everybody I know oh, there. Photographer, there are three double, two, two bedrooms. And, uh, and uh, we had two people that left the office um, to help us. Um, and they went to work for the developer. Yeah, cool. Um, as the architectural developer said, they actually made stuff that's and, neat. Uh, they live nearby, so we the team is pretty small. Claudia and our new assistant, uh, Taylor. Yeah, uh, Taylor's been an absolute delight to deal with. Must say, she's been fabulous. Yeah, she just fell into my lap. You know, she was um, Dennis Hopper's assistant and publicist for like a long time. The real, <laughs> the real Dennis Hopper. <laughs> yeah, and I say that because we have a guy in Phoenix that does stucco, and his name is Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Maybe she fooled you. It's yeah. copper plaster, which is funny because we make plaster in offer. Is this? Like... Oh, of course, copper plaster. Yeah, that makes sense. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Fine. So, so, uh, got an excellent team right now. Um, people are moving back that left for a while. Yeah. And um, and all of the difficult people are gone, and the cool people are here, and we just hired. Three, four, five more people. Wow! So how many? How many is in your team? It'll be eighteen. Eighteen, including the including the four in our lighting line. Wow! Um, concept lighting lab. Fifteen in my section. Yeah. And Peter, you have twelve, do you, in your team? Yeah. We do, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fabulous thing. That's about it, right? I went to 35 for like five years. Right. And I, I, I actually would stumble on people's names and stuff. It's, it's not my style. Yeah. So, I mean, it was fun because so many people from, were from other countries. Um, but, you know, it's just now we're all in the same, same building and we're ready to move. If we get a little bigger, we can get up to 20. Right, if we need to. But, but 20 is big enough to keep all the connection. We, we rented out two of our other buildings to other people. So I just, it's a kind of um, self policing, can't explain it. Yeah. Yeah. But this is my new um, private office. With, the, with your drums in there. Uh, yeah, I got a snare drum here. There you go. Michael Boucher sent that as my 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 warning gift for moving in. Who, who plays that? I have, I have a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only when you let him out. <laughs> no, but I, I you know I lost some of my good designers, so I really felt I had to start doing it myself. So I bought this antique drawing table and put up some signed Motherwell prints and all the families over here. And, uh, um, Claudia's two-door sound. It's in that the white on white building. Uh, you probably saw. We've been here since then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, cross London. And so I thought the quarantine was going to go a lot longer, and I was going stir crazy at home, and I had no place to do you know drawing with a you know, 
old school. Yeah, with the pencil. Um, it's really what I know how to do. And, um, and uh, just getting back into it. I have this drawing that I did years ago as a uh, motivation. Oh, fabulous. There you go. That's cool. Haunting me. Haunting you, did you say? Taunting. Yeah, taunting. Okay. I like it. Um, Peter, do you, um, what do you see is like likely to change or anything in particular um, that you'd highlight? Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm very, very conscious of the, the human change, climate human change, and, and um, we're trying to be responsible to it. We're designing uh, prefabs which are carbon negative where we're looking at materials seriously, what materials we use. Yesterday, you know, we modified a, a design so it was more um, uh, energy conscious, uh -huh. conscious, you know, like we're very um, uh, office conscious of, of energy use. Uh, we've just redone the office, in fact, and, and you know, installed all solar panels and, and we're off the grid almost. We're just going to get water collection sorted, that sort of thing. So we're predicting a, 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 an energy conscious future um, in all aspects, both in terms of materials and buildings and building footprints and that sort of thing. But at the same time, um, the reason I accepted the offer to be on the podcast was simply, you know, I have great, great friendship, very close friendship, but also great admiration for Rick. And, and one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, aside from his humour, is, is um, his ability to capture the human spirit in his buildings, you know, the way the light falls and the, the heat on your side of your face and all those things that he talks about. And when you go and experience the buildings, they they typify those moments, which is incredibly beautiful and is really the fundamental of architecture, mm. which he talked about. Mm. And so it's really in support of that that I um, I came to be on the on the podcast. And but you know, and, and beyond that, I, I think probably mutually we feel the same way that the future's got to be really well managed, particularly by architects, I think. Um, and when we're seeing some, well, you, you experienced it last week, the yeah. way that we talk about that and teach that and, and try and understand that in more and more refined ways, not so much better ways, but the refinement of thinking anyway. So I think that will become, well, certainly... For us, it's it's huge, and and so the buildings we're delivering, the houses, for instance, we're delivering are a lot smaller than they used to be, mm -hmm. and and I'm talking thirty percent smaller, um, and and the materials we're using a lot more recycled materials, and that brings in subjects of tactility and and um, you know uh, remnants and um, patina and um, history and all sorts of things. So it, it, I think there's a, a responsibility that has come much more into focus in, in the work we're trying to do. 
and and that responsibility lies with you know how we're going to survive into the future. Really. And I and I I don't overplay that. I think it's I think it's just fundamental to the way things are shifting. Yeah, it's but, like a baseline. Yeah, I, I really genuinely do. You know, and when you look at the facts, you know, unless we consider this, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. A whole so, lot more trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Rick that you know those those elements of architecture, the atmosphere, you know, the the, the qualities of human human nurturing are absolutely the fundamentals of architecture. And then beyond that, there's the responsibilities of architecture. Mm. It, it's um, I think you're birds of a feather, of course. Um, and oh, I think um, you know one of the things that. Um, if you just look at the architecture um, and, and not so much form and materials and all, it's um, that connects me and Peter is that um, connection to nature. Yeah. And I, I think he maybe had some aspect of this, but when I was a kid, we were pretty financially challenged. And when it was time to do something special, it wasn't going to brunch at the Ritz. It was going out to the woods and have a picnic, a picnic in the forest or go to the beach and swim, or go to the lake and swim, which I was like, a lot. And, um, you know, and that's why I mentioned that Polanco um, Tennis 205 project, because it was essential in my mind to have a house that had nature in every room. Yeah. And even if it's, you know, you know made by us people. But, um, you know, I think uh, one of the best compliments I heard of any architect ever get was uh, Peter told me the story about when Issey Miyake, um, Peter asked him, why did you hire us to do this? And the, I might, I'm just paraphrasing, but said, because I believe you could get, bring nature into my life, something like that, right, Peter? And yeah. um, man, that's like the best compliment you can get. Not that, boy, you really know how to pick out stone from Calcutta. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I like your plumbing fixtures on that one. No. <laughs> no, but that that thing to um, still provide shelter, security, and um, the the things that we look for from a home, and then also to be at one with nature is you know that's truly a a gift and a discipline. I mean, yeah, it's something that certainly from a week with Peter, I, I really get that feel and um, talking to you, Rick, and looking at all your work, I get the same feel. It's like that's uh, one's not exclusive of the other. They, they can be together. Yeah, I mean, you, you it takes know, great thought and design. And I believe you can have that in the city. Yeah. I mean, like I said, tennis to apply, but my own house has a lot of nature in and around it. And we have currently two, hummingbird nests and the two mothers are they've already two have left the nest and they they do they each have two eggs and the second one takes a little longer because it's just not enough room yeah and the, the second one on each nest is ready to take off and i'm watching it from through a window that's it's just by positioning it's reflected to them so they can't see me watching them taking pictures fantastic Amazing. Put some of those on Instagram if you get a chance. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, guys, I so appreciate this chat. Yeah, I gave up on my Instagram. But... Oh, if somebody's yeah. doing it, there's a post there most days. Um, 
I really appreciate this chat. And Peter, thank you so much for getting out of bed so early because I know that you really it isn't morning tea time for you. No, I know that you pulled yourself back from your beach walk to, the, to chat with us. And that was really special as well. Um, I will post both of your socials and do was all those kind of things. taking a bath at 10 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> Me or Peter? No, it was Peter for sure. <laughs> When you get up at night, <laughs> no other names named. Um, you will post all your socials and all those kind of things and um, some pictures and bits and pieces, and we'll let you know when the podcast can be out. But thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it and look forward to um, coming and visiting in Tucson. I want to see the, uh, the studio and stuff. When we next get to oh, fly, yeah, yeah, that'd be really great. Really good, and also um, uh, if you I'm can set... start domestically. Yeah, right. Um, with with your uh, masterclass that you run in the states, about seventy percent of our listeners, maybe 70 percent, are in America. So, um, if you could um, get Taylor to send me through all the details on that, we'll put that on there as well because that's something phenomenal that people. Well, we're um, we're, we're changing the whole thing now because. Um... We did it for five or six years and we had people like Peter and Rick one year. And uh, the last time we didn't you know Marlon Blackwell and Julie Snow. And last time we had John Pawson and Frida Escobedo. And it's just so funny that like, John Pawson's humor, British humor is just hilarious. Um, students would mention another architect. Like, yeah, I was looking at Jumpstore's chaplain. He'd go, who? <laughs> Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, and then somebody else would say, "Yeah, frankly, right to this little chapel in the back." One of the who? And Rick Joy was talking to me yesterday about that. Who? <laughs> and so it was pretty funny. But that was the last one, and it's bittersweet because um, uh, we were doing it at the house we did in Vermont, mm -hmm. and the clients uh, had planned to let me use it for uh, the masterclass first week of August in perpetuity. They put it in the deed, but things changed, and they were trying to sell it, and they decided to not do that. And they sold their Boston house, and they moved into the house in Vermont permanently. They have horses; pond is twice as big. The driveway is different. I've been helping them with that, and um, and uh, there, that's it. That's their family home. So you won't be running masterclass from there. to go through eight years of them trying to sell it for. Four million dollars more than it's worth, and then um, and now they're living in it. And it was fine before because they treated it like a vacation house. So there's no personal things in the drawers and the bedroom. And yeah. But now it's all their personal stuff. So I'm going to start a new one in Tucson. I'll bring it on. And um, because we're really more and more motivated to have um, mid-career architects um, and then students. Um, and the last one was there were no students. It was just mid-career. It was pretty fun. And um, the um, we do it in Tucson in like January, February. We'll get all kinds of people coming from the north where it's snowing and there's blizzards. And I'm just trying to find a place to do it. And uh, the, the the two guest teachers would could stay at my house. And there you go. Would be, um, Hanging out in Tucson in February or so, it's just magic. Yeah, I bet. It'd be, be fabulous. Well, 
um, as that all comes together, we'll put it out on our socials and stuff for you as well. And we go out to, you know, around 50,000 people on a database um, with our databases that we send out to as well. So it'd be good to promote. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you. And um, I look forward to uh, finding somebody to interrupt a podcast with you as well. <laughs> yeah, well, nobody told me Peter was going to come. I would have dressed up. <laughs> I thought you had. <laughs> I, I thought you had, yeah. You look like you dressed up a bit. <laughs> you put a shirt on. <laughs> well, when you're 62, you kind of have to put a shirt on. <laughs> uh, no, really appreciate it, guys. Really fabulous, and thanks. And I, look, I know the listeners will really appreciate it as well because there's so much in depth that you get into when you're just talking at that level. It was great. Really good. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? and see if they follow you, see if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it, because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.